Let me ask you to uh, turn this morning to Romans chapter 9. And we are going to be working our way through this uh, passage section by section, so I'm not going to read the whole thing at, at once this morning, unlike uh, most Sundays. We have hit that uh, turning point of Romans 8 and uh, took our time going through that uh, amazing chapter. And one of the things that, that Paul had said was this back in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that uh, you would open your word to us today. Your word that is so challenging that we will never totally get to the bottom of it or exhaust it, and yet so clear that the child can understand. And so we come to you as children asking you to open our, our minds and our hearts to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, like he has done throughout the book of Romans, is going to uh, address a question that either people are asking or thinking, or they should ask. And in this particular case, the question that he is about to answer is, okay, well, there's something looming out here where we have, uh, we've gone through these first eight chapters. We have learned about salvation We've learned about the need for trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, that, that there is a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, is provided by Christ himself, that we couldn't conjure up. There is all of that, but what about what was said in the Old Testament about Israel. What about them? How do we understand that that's the case? Aren't they God's people? Weren't they the chosen people in the Old Testament? Aren't they the apple of God's eye? If so, why have so many of them, if not most, rejected the one who claims to be the Messiah? 
is this a flaw in, in God's plan? Did he somewhere along the way fail? What are we to think with all of this? And so Paul is going to address that concern. And while he does, because that may not be the most looming thing in your mind today, I want you to be uh, thinking how this applies to those who you love who are unsaved. Some of the same questions will come up as we think about them. As we consider what he has so clearly laid out in terms of uh, foreknowing, predest uh, predestining, calling, justifying, and ultimately glorifying. What does that mean? For the one in my family or the one that I love that is not saved. Now he's going to deal with how that doctrine of election works and we'll be looking at it next week as well. In fact, next week we're going to look at uh, even more so at some of the objections because he's dealing with those. But most importantly, he's going to take us deeper to know God and how God works. So let's first of all, in this passage in Romans 9, look at Paul's incredible love for the lost. Look at what he says in verse uh, 1 and 2. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He's saying, he's saying really, what I'm about to say, I, this is really what I, what I think. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, I am convinced that the reason for that is because we, we do know that, that Paul had uh, glimpsed heaven, but I think Paul, perhaps more than most, also understood the ramifications for those who don't go to heaven those who aren't trusting in Christ alone. And because of that, he understood the consequences of unbelief. Last Sunday, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Dr. Paul Koistra uh, was preaching and with our uh, mission focus. And one of the big aspects of his message was uh, having a compassion for the lost, like Jesus had. He, he preached from Matthew 9. And I was sitting right there during the message, and all I could think of, I knew I was coming to this passage, and all I could think about is that's, that's exactly what we see with the Apostle Paul in terms of his deep compassion for the lost. He exemplified that. He had anguish, 
He had sorrow because he understood heaven, but he also understood about hell. And it put him in anguish to think that most of the people that he knew, his own people, the Jewish people, were on their way to hell. And that's where his anguish came from. So much so that he went on in verse 3 and said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, he was saying, basically, that if it were possible I would be willing to be condemned if they could be saved. I can't imagine saying that. And yet, his deep anguish that he had for his people caused him to make a very Jesus-like statement in this sense. Paul couldn't do that. He couldn't substitute himself for his people. I think he really felt that uh, in, in terms of, I don't think he was, he knew, well, this isn't possible, so let me say this. This will really impress him. I don't believe that for a moment. I think he was in such anguish that he said, I, I wish I could do this. But of course, he couldn't. He couldn't atone for others. He couldn't even atone for himself. And yet Jesus did that very thing. He put himself in the place of his people. He didn't deserve it. And yet he was the substitute for his people and paid for their sin. Now Paul goes on to talk about Uh, some of the outward advantages of Israel. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And that's that's very typical of, of Paul, especially in Romans, where he will begin to say something and he will get so caught up into praise that he, he does a doxology right here in the middle. But he talks about uh, some of their advantages. He talks about them being adopted. Now, this wouldn't be the, the adoption we talk about in terms of salvation in the New Testament. But in Exodus 4, verse 22, it Israel is called God's son. They were called out. The glory, most commentators think that's talking about God's Shekinah glory, the cloud and the fire showing God to be in the midst of his people. These are the advantages that uh, uh, Israel had. The covenants, the promise of blessing that he would be their God and a, and, and a God to their children. The law was given to them. The worship. They had the tabernacle, the temple, 
blood sacrifices, purification. They had priests and all of these things pointing forward to the Messiah, the patriarchs, all the godly leaders, and the Messiah, the human ancestry of Christ is Jewish. These are, these are amazing advantages that these people, this group of people had. Now think about this week as I was working on this, I started thinking about the advantages we have of being people of faith in the United States of America in our day and age. Have you ever thought about the advantages we have? We've got the completed Bible. And as, you know, as many copies as we need, we have access to. We've got books by uh, the, the, some of the finest scholars down through the centuries, access to them. We've got freedom. We don't have to worry about uh, coming to church in terms of being arrested or, or hiding out or uh, doing it undercover in any sense. We have wonderful facilities here. I've been to uh, churches in a, a number of different places in the world. And ours aren't the, the best facilities in the United States, but I've never seen better facilities in other countries where I have been. Amazing, that advantage we have. We have access to good teaching. There are, there are wonderful teachers here in this church. And, and not only that, we have access to, again, to hear some of the finest communicators in, uh, in, throughout the world. You can hear them on podcasts and, uh, and on the radio and on, on TV. We have all of those advantages. And yet, here's the thing. The Scripture is is so clear throughout that it's, it's not about our works. It's not about what we have, and it is certainly not about our advantages when it comes to knowing Christ. It's never about our position or advantage. And the bottom line is no outward advantage is sufficient to give us salvation. And that was the point. That was the case with his people there as well. Now, what he's going to do here in these next verses is he's going to define Israel. And once again, this is, this is really a, a, a turning point in terms of him clarifying. How are, how are we to understand then all of these, these promises and he starts out again with the, the question in verse 6, or the statement, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that's basically a, an answer to the question, well, did, did the word fail then? That's the crux of the objection. It seems like if if he called Israel, if God called Israel his people, and he made all of these promises to Israel, then he must have broken his promise. And he gives a brief 
but a stunning answer here. He says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What he's saying is this. Let me interpret that. He's saying that uh, belonging to the true Israel is not about whether you literally have Jewish blood in your veins. He is redefining, he, he's saying, let me tell you who the true Israel really are. There is a, a higher and truer definition because it's from God's perspective. And it's not just about being born with, with Jewish blood. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now let's talk about that. He's saying, you can be Israel, and all of the promises that were given to Israel are yours, not just if you have Jewish blood in your veins, but if you share the faith of Abraham. If you are his spiritual child, he's already said that back in Romans 4. There's a whole chapter pertaining to that. R.C. Sproul says, God's promise is given sovereignly, not biologically. So that's, that's the definition there. So let me translate what that means to us. Who are the true Israel? If you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, you are Israel. We are Israel. And so, all of the promises that are given to Israel pertaining to the spiritual life, to the spiritual inheritance, are for us. Now Paul then further answers the accusation that the word of God or God's promises has, had failed. And he says it's, it's all about God's sovereign choice. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, there's that word again, election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the old, older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Now, first, let me, let me uh, address that last phrase. That, that is such a hard phrase for many to swallow. And one of the reasons is because when we hear uh, that, that term he hated, we tend to think about what that would mean if, if they said Dale hated so-and-so. In our case, hatred is, is almost always related to a sinful attitude. Theoretically, we could hate something in a righteous way, but almost all the time, there is a sinful attitude that is attached to hatred. So don't make that mistake when we're thinking about God. What he's saying here is that uh, in terms of this hatred is he will hold him eternally accountable for the sin that is in his life. That's the hatred. Now, this isn't a new idea. Paul didn't invent this. Don't blame Paul. He is quoting from Malachi chapter 1, the second, third verse, almost a direct quote. This is a principle from God in terms of sovereign choice. Now, let me, let me bounce out of this just for a, a second, and we'll get into uh, this kind of thing more next week. But one of the things that, that uh, I, I've seen through the years in terms of this, those that have a really hard time with the idea that, that, that God sovereignly chose this one and, and not that one, chose some and not all. I can understand that. When I first heard that, I said, no, it can't be that way. And yet here's something that I, uh, I, I see in many who have that problem, who have that issue. And that is, they don't seem to have the same issue, the fact that God sovereignly chose Israel, the Israel of the Old Testament. That he, out of all of the nations of the world, he chose this little nation of Israel, and he said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm not going to bless them. You're going to be, have my favor. You're going to receive all of these advantages and, and the, the others will not. And most people just accept that. They say, well, God, it's his prerogative to do that. But then when we come to the New Testament and, and, and it talks about election, then there's the objection, well, that's not fair. Again, we're going to deal with that next week. But, but keep that in mind. And keep in mind as well, if you don't have the objection to that, understand this. We are the true Israel. He is just continuing the way he has always worked, and that is with a sovereign choice. Now, we've spent a good bit of time on on uh, election, predestination, and Romans, but let's revisit just for a minute in the context of 
our concern for the lost, those that are lost in, in our lives and so on. If you consider yourself a believer and I ask you, how did God save you? What would you say? Don't say it out loud. Just what would, think about it. Well, the vast majority would say, well, it was by his mercy. It was by his grace. It was out of his love. If I ask you, why did God save you and not save everyone else that were in your same situation, maybe sitting in your same pew, maybe in your house, maybe in the same room when you came to Christ? Very few would answer, well, because I'm smarter or wiser or more spiritual. In fact, I don't think I've ever met anyone that has said that. That's why I was saved and others weren't. The answer was it was about God's grace. God opened my eyes and I responded. So the formerly dead person, Ephesians 2, 1, that I was, was made alive by God. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Jesus, in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 665, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then we read in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Here's what these do. It brings hope. This doctrine should bring us hope for that unsaved relative whose heart you cannot even imagine would ever open up to God, that you have witnessed again and again to, and you can't cause them to budge. As long as it's on you, there's a hopelessness. But if it is upon a sovereign God, it should bring you hope. Not only does it bring hope, but election clarifies it's all about God and not about us. It's not about my works. That's what the whole, whole of Scripture tells us. It's about him and his mercy. And then it strips us of boasting it keeps us from saying, yeah, I, I was smart enough. We're the smart ones here because we chose him. And we can't do that. But instead what it does is it, it turns us away from ourselves to him and causes us to worship him because it's about his sovereignty 
and not about us. We're coming off our, our mission emphasis. And some, when, when they hear about election, they mistakenly think the doctrine of election will hinder evangelism or it will hinder a, a global missions conscience. But it's just the opposite. When we embrace that it is, it is God who is sovereign and not us, when we not only embrace that but are embraced by it, we will be unleashed to a bigger vision of his mission. We could think of those who have gone before us in missions. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, David Livingston, John Patton, George Mueller, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, Every one of them loved the doctrine of election. And it drove them to do amazing and courageous and faithful and even radical things in response to what God had done in their lives by plucking them out of the fires of hell. Plucking them out of their death. Not because of anything they had done but only because of his grace. So, we can ask the question, why isn't everyone saved? But the bigger question is, why is anyone saved? It's only because of his grace. And the more personal question is, why am I saved? When you answer that, and you know like Paul that it was all about God from the beginning to the end, it will absolutely drive you into a deeper worship of him. And that's where we are today as we approach this table. This table that reminds us about what Jesus did on the cross not for deserving children, but for rebellious enemies of God who he graciously adopted and is making us into his children who are becoming more and more like his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul elsewhere said this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is not magic. This is to be taken by faith, by faith alone. And so let a person examine himself and 
eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats the bread and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let me tell you what you can think about as we approach this table. All of those advantages that were given to Israel are ours. Adopted. The glory. The covenants. The law. Worship. Promises. The patriarchs. All of these are fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, they are ours. And so as we partake, we celebrate that he has said, you, my precious believers, are my dear people Israel. This I've done for you. Let's bow together. Yes, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your sovereign choice to call us your children while we were your enemies, while we were dead, when we had no hope. And Lord, may this and this alone give us hope. Receive our worship as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.